This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Carol Van Dam, and here's what's coming up. For me, like, I had a personal journey, but I think the reason why people often still choose HBCUs, even though you have a choice, is because we live in a world where race still plays a very big, prominent role in in the U.S. That's American journalist Aisha Rascoe, who just released a book on the role historically black colleges and universities have played in this country. Also, the U.N. Human Rights Organization is concerned about the situation in Senegal. And we celebrate World Radio Day. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights is alarmed by rising tensions in Senegal and is calling for broad-based inclusive elections to be held as soon as possible. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Volker Turk, the United Nations human rights chief, says he is deeply concerned by the rise in violence and increasing violations of human rights following last week's suspension of the presidential election, which had been set for February 25th. His spokeswoman, Liz Throssell, says initially peaceful protests have since turned violent. She says at least three young men have been killed, and at least 266 people reportedly have been arrested, including journalists, during protests across the country. Some reports of unnecessary and disproportionate use of force against protesters and restrictions on civic space We call on the authorities to ensure that they uphold Senegal's long-held tradition of democracy and respect for human rights. Investigations into the killings must be prompt, thorough and independently conducted, and those found responsible must be held to account. The government reportedly banned a protest march scheduled for Tuesday, saying it could seriously hamper traffic. One of the organizers, Eliman Habi Khan, told the French news service, AFP, that his group will postpone the march because it wants to remain within the law. Earlier this month, Senegal's president, Macky Sall, said he postponed the election because of concerns about the disqualification of some candidates. Sall, who says he is not running for a third term, said he wanted time for a dialogue to resolve disputes. Parliament later voted to hold the election in December. Human rights spokesperson Throssel says any decision to postpone elections should involve broad-based consultations. She says opposition groups, women, young people and marginalized groups should be included in this dialogue to preserve the country's democracy. She also says her office is concerned by the Senegalese government's restrictions on mobile Internet coverage, which she says is an infringement of people's fundamental freedoms. It is really important to guarantee uh, the right to access uh, to information. Um, so any restrictions that are on access to information, you know, big, big sort of cutting the Internet, cutting uh, mobile systems, um, should should be really pursuing a, a legitimate aim under international law and, and, and be strictly limited uh, to what's necessary. And that, and that includes being as, as limited as possible in, in time. Mobile phone service is cut off today in Senegal. Throssel says her office has expressed its concerns to the Senegalese authorities. She says it is crucial that authorities unequivocally order the security forces to respect and ensure human rights, which she says includes security forces respecting the rights of protesters to freedom of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva.
U.S. President Joe Biden and Jordan's King Abdullah discussed a looming Israeli ground offensive in southern Gaza and the threat of a humanitarian calamity among Palestinian civilians. The White House said Biden had warned Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel should not conduct a military operation against Hamas in Rafah without what it calls a credible and executable plan to protect civilians. Nevertheless, Israel said early yesterday that it launched a series of strikes on Rafah, the southern Gaza city, where some 1.4 million Palestinians have sought refuge during the four-month-old Israel-Hamas war. Khalil Jashan, executive director of the Arab Center in Washington, discussed these developments with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. Essentially, I think uh, this request by President Biden from uh, Mr. Netanyahu uh, came in the context of uh, growing uh, differences of opinion with regards to the continuing military campaign that Israel is waging in Gaza, particularly now in the southern part outside the city of Rafah in the Gaza Strip. Differences are getting more and more serious. And as a matter of fact, the two sides, the president and the prime minister, have not spoken for three weeks. This is their first conversation in three weeks. In light of the differences specifically over the threatened invasion uh, that Israel is planning to do against the city of Rafah, not only with its three to four hundred uh, normal inhabitants, but with the fact that uh, over a million uh, displaced people from other parts of Gaza have found refuge in the city. Influenced by uh, international pressure and international concern, the administration seems to be having second thoughts about the green light has given uh, the Israeli government concerning uh, its war in uh, Gaza. So the president basically conveyed uh, to the Israeli government through this uh, conversation with the prime minister, in addition to other means uh, before that, conversations with visiting diplomats from Israel and vice versa, American diplomats uh, recently visiting Israel, conveyed the same idea before that uh, the president would like not uh, to see a military campaign in Rafah similar to what we have seen uh, before, considering the potential impact of a serious massacre against civilian uh, populations. So the president made it clear, according to the transcript of the conversation from the White House, that he would rather uh, have uh, some kind of a plan, credible, he called it, uh, credible, enforceable plan that takes into consideration the fate of the massive uh, civilian uh, refugee population uh, in Rafah. European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said an Israeli offensive on Rafah would lead to an unspeakable humanitarian catastrophe and grave tensions with Egypt. Human Rights Watch said forced displacement is a war crime. Mm-hmm. Would that translate into any international action? Uh, it could. Uh, it depends on, first of all, whether Israel uh, would go ahead and implement uh, its threat to invade Rafah. Two, uh, how it would end up doing that and the extent uh, of the damage to the civilian population and to the civilian uh, infrastructure. I think uh, Joseph uh, Borrell was expressing the will of the international community. It's a broad feeling uh, across the world that uh, there is danger uh, inherently in the campaign that Israel is about to wage, has been threatening for weeks to wage against the city of uh, Rafah. 
uh, with regards to both, first of all, the massive killings uh, that we uh, have seen before. I mean, thus far, we have uh, close to like 30,000 Palestinians killed uh, in this war. We have more than 65,000 injured. We have 1.9 million uh, displaced. So based on that, based on the record of the past uh, four months, it is this global sentiment worldwide that such campaign could really lead to even much larger numbers in terms of particularly killed uh, civilians. And particular concern, of course, here is also the targeting of the civilian infrastructure, the hospitals particularly, the medical establishment uh, has been targeted. And there are concerns, particularly in Europe, as Mr. Borrell has expressed, and here in the United States, uh, that this could be a disaster not only for Israel, but also a disaster for countries that are perceived uh, and have in the past supported this Israeli military uh, campaign. Uh, in the final analysis, if this war spreads beyond, uh, uh, first of all, the borders of Gaza, and, and particularly if this, what we have seen thus far ends up being implemented in, in the city of Rafah, uh, resulting in mass numbers of refugees, that could constitute a threat to the national security of these countries, particularly neighboring countries like Egypt and Jordan. And that's why Egypt has expressed that concern uh, for several uh, days now, and uh, so has uh, Jordan, and that's why the King of Jordan is here in town meeting with the president. That was Khalil Jashan, executive director of the Arab Center in Washington. He was speaking with my colleague, Mohammed El Shanawi. Ethiopia's government security forces killed at least 45 citizens in a massacre in Amhara State in late July or January. That according to the independent state-affiliated Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. A statement said the commission had confirmed the identity of at least 45 civilians who were extrajudicially killed by government security forces for allegedly supporting FANU, an ethnic Amhara militia. It said the death toll could be even higher. The French news agency AFP says the killings in the town of Marari follow months of clashes last year between Ethiopia's military and FANU, a self-defense militia. The fighting prompted the federal government to impose a state of emergency in August that lawmakers extended this month. The U.S. last week said it was deeply concerned by reports of targeted civilian killings in Marari and called for an independent investigation. This week, we're taking a look at employment on the African continent. Today, we're hearing from young graduates in Senegal, some who spoke with my colleagues Alison Fernandez and Mustafa Dean from Dakar say they face challenges in securing jobs that align with their field of study or academic background. Some of them opted for roles in delivery or transportation services out of necessity. Mamadou Ibrahima Mall graduated with a degree in business and hoped to work in finance. He sent out many job applications, but hasn't found a position in his field yet. Now he works in delivery. All these applications are currently pending, and as of now, I haven't received any feedback. The time you invest in reading the job posts, entering personal information, and yet not receiving any response, it's a waste of time. During my first years of study, managing all my needs became challenging. I needed a source of income. It was during this period that I saw people involved in the delivery business. After classes, I would use my motorbike to make deliveries. 
This is not only enable me to cover my rent, but also enough for my other needs, such as food, and occasionally supported my studies. My big wish is to get off the motorbike and get a job in my field, specifically in finance. Matar by fall sells coffee and says mall situation is common. Many young people are struggling as they try to earn a decent income, he says. And in his case, he says he sells tuba cafe, while others sell peanuts or work as street vendors. He says everyone is involved in all kinds of small businesses. People are doing whatever they can to make a living and support their families. But the reality is that finding a job is difficult in the country. He says he comes across numerous fellow graduates who, like Ibrahima, are struggling with unemployment. Ibrahim Nigam, an artist, says the employment situation pushes people to leave Senegal. Most of the young people attempting to cross Europe on canoes or those heading to Nicaragua often have diplomas. Despite their educational achievements, they find themselves without jobs or a stable income. Imagine being a young graduate who has completed his studies but does not even have 10 cents or 100 francs in his pocket to afford a cup of coffee. In such situations, it becomes more understandable why young people might be willing to take the risk of such dangerous journeys. We will have more on the employment situation across the continent throughout this week. You can find more on the topic at voaafrica.com. You're listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Switzerland's appeal court has upheld guilty verdicts against six bodyguards of Cameroon's President Paul Bia for the 2019 assault of a journalist. The French news agency AFP says the judges rejected their claims that they had immunity as they were protecting the president. La Tribune newspaper reported that all six were ordered to pay fines, but that the punishment was suspended. The appeals judges decided the six were outside their duty to defend Bia when they beat up Adrian Cruz, a journalist for the Swiss public broadcasting network, covering a demonstration outside a Geneva hotel. The bodyguards injured Cruz and took his phone and other items in the attack on June 26, 2019. The Swiss Foreign Ministry summoned Cameroon's ambassador over the incident. Here in the United States, National Public Radio broadcasts news and entertainment all over the country. Aisha hosts Aisha Rasco, that is, hosts NPR's Weekend Edition morning show, and she has just released a book entitled HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. It's a collection of candid personal essays from famous historically black colleges or university alumni, including Oprah Winfrey, Stacey Abrams, and Branford Marsalis. As part of Black History Month, Rasco described to me the significant contribution that HBCUs have made in the American culture. HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. And in the U.S., some were created shortly, you know, before the Civil War. Many were created in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, basically to give 
Black people a space in which they could get higher education in the U.S. because they were shut out of all of the other institutions due to segregation, discrimination, all of that. So it was a way to give free Black people a way to get educated and trained. Many of the earlier schools would be you know, training in agriculture or nursing colleges or things of that nature, but it was a way to give Black people um, a space to get education that they could not get otherwise at predominantly white institutions. Now, that was the beginning of HBCUs, and now you have choices. You have lots and lots and lots of choices, but you still chose an HBCU. So why, personally, did you choose one? And, and again, why Howard University here in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a it's a kind of a, comp- I don't want to say complicated, but it's, for me, like, I had a personal journey, but I think the reason why people often still choose HBCUs, even though you have a choice, is because we live in a world where race still plays a very big, prominent role in, in, in the U.S. And so what I found in putting together the book is that HBCUs can offer a sort of a safe haven for young Black scholars where they can just go to an environment. They don't have to say, okay, I'm here and I'm Black, but you know, I got here and I, I didn't sneak in through the back door. I deserve to be here. There are all these questions that can come up being a Black person in a space where everyone looks different than you. And it's not that you're not challenged, but you're not, you're challenged just to be the best that you can be, not to prove that you're capable of thought or prove that you're capable of intelligence. And so it's a very different environment. It allows you to thrive, basically. Yes. And you're, yeah. You don't have to deal with all the other noise going on that you yeah. might have to at a, at a regular college or university. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 it's freedom from that distraction that is racism. And Toni Morrison, you know, the famous author, um, I start with a quote from her that says, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. And I think that that came up over and over in the book, how racism can just be a distraction. It can just take you off your path of what you're trying to do, which is just to grow and be a regular person. And you're so having to to deal with all of these other obstacles. You had quite a few famous people contribute essays. Give me just a couple examples of, it doesn't have to be how famous they are, but just some of your more favorite ones for whatever your reasons were, because they were inspiring or, you know, you felt they were powerful, what what have you? Well, you know, I, I say that each of the stories in the book is like my, my own personal little baby, because uh, I love, I, I had to work for each and every single one of them. I think the one of the ones that always stands out is Roy Wood Jr., the comedian. He has an excellent essay. He went to FAMU. Um, But he got in trouble with the law when he went to FAMU. He actually got arrested, convicted, and he had he was suspended for a semester and he had to go to his FAMU professors and ask them for a second chance to get back on campus so he would be able to graduate. And he got that second chance and he really credits that second chance with uh, allowing him to be who we see today, who's an Emmy award-winning comedian. He's at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. All of those things, he says, came because he got a chance. That is NPR Weekend Edition host and author Aisha Rasko. She was speaking with me about her new book, HBCU Made, A Celebration of the Black College Experience. 
South Africa will send 2,900 troops as part of its contribution to the Southern African Development Community force deployed to tackle armed groups in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Reuters reports that a statement from the president's office says the one-year deployment will cover a one-year period which begins on December 15, 2023, and will cost roughly $105 million. The 16-member state SADC approved the Eastern Congo mission in May to help Congo, the world's top supplier of cobalt and Africa's top copper producer, and also address instability and deteriorating security conditions in its rest of East. The deployment comes as Congo battles Tutsi-led M23 rebels, whose attacks and advances in recent days are threatening the North Kivu provincial capital of Goma. Well, today is World Radio Day, a day to recognize the role of radio news and entertainment around the world. And in Kenya, we heard from Wahome, a building contractor in Nairobi, for whom radio is a regular companion. Personally, I listen to radio every morning when I go to work. I feel like radio for me means a lot because it has grown me musically and also socially because you get to learn so much through the radio. I would prefer actually listening to radio than to watch TV. But Wanjiru, a Nairobi psychologist and a music artist as well, notes that other media options are beginning to displace radio. The radio is it's just like any other source of communication. Yeah, right now, Jude, there are so many sources of communication. So I guess radio is one of them where people get information and news about what's happening around the world and also entertainment. I also feel like radio has been surpassed by so many other things. There are so many other things that have come up. Like right now, people prefer podcasts over radios because <laughs> podcasts have more information and they're more detailed to and they're more specific to what people want to listen to. And there's also the internet. I think radio can play the role of educating people more. There are still people who listen to radio so much, especially the old people. In Abuja, this woman named Funke remains devoted to radio, in part because it can go with her everywhere. When I think about radio, I think about information, education, I think about entertainment, I think about laughter, I think about the joy that it brings to me when I tune into my radio set, especially when I'm in my car. Um, it's like my companion, really, because sometimes I get instant feedback which is different from all other, um, you know, electronic media that we have. It's it's really, really different. Yes, you don't see the people, you hear the voices and you fall in love with the voices that you hear. And, you know, it just makes you really, really in tune with what is being said on radio. And trust me, it's one medium that a lot of people, um, you know, take for granted. But personally, I love radio. This man, Michael, works on air in radio in Africa and tells us why he loves his job. Radio means a lot to me. It is my friend, my neighbor, and my companion. Radio is the cheapest source of news and information compared to television, newspaper, and magazine. With radio... I don't need to have electricity to listen or a certain ability to reach to be able to listen to radio. Radio is neither bulky nor inconveniencing. Just turn on your radio 
and tune to the station for news, information, and entertainment. So, give me a radio anytime, anywhere, and you have made my day. Thanks, Michael. And on this radio day, we here at Voice of America want to say thank you to all our listeners. Keep tuning in, and we'll keep giving you the news, analysis, and entertainment that you want, just as we have for more than 80 years. And if you miss our broadcasts on the radio, you can listen to all your favorite radio programs on voaafrica.com and on voanews.com. And that wraps And that wraps it up for this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Muck Bill Yabro, actually, it's not. It's Mr. James Vandy, or David Vandy, and our engineer, Atreus Regis. Thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>